When I was a child, I uh, had a sense that there was God, that there was a God, that there was a divine being of some sort. I didn't know much about God. I grew up in a household where we prayed. One of the parents prayed before dinner. We went to church pretty faithfully on Sundays. Uh, But that was about all I knew. I had this sense that there was uh, someone greater, something greater, a divine being. I didn't have words or language for that of my own. But I had this sense that I could speak to, and sometimes did, this holy transcendent, but at the same time present being, though I didn't have those words either. And I believed that that being could speak to me, and sometimes did, though I never heard audible words myself. But I had this intangible belief in a God, in an eternal being. And while I was not able to articulate that as a child, I can now resonate with something C.S. Lewis once wrote. He wrote, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that kind of explains where I was as a child and as a youth and then teenager, unsure about all things God, but knowing there must be a different world or reality or existence and one that was better. Even without ever ever having heard of what Jesus called the kingdom of God, I believe that there was another world or realm that was nearby and that that world or realm was governed by a wholly different being. But what might God look like? I kept asking myself, What might this God be like, look like, and how could I know? Those were my questions, and those are probably questions that millions and maybe billions of people have asked over the course of history, maybe with those words or other words, consciously or subconsciously, privately or publicly. And the scriptures before us this morning address some of these nascent human questions, and we'll get to them in a moment. But first, last Sunday morning, we began a study of the book of Colossians. Uh, If you were here, fantastic. If you weren't, uh, we'll bring you up to speed a little bit. I encourage you to listen online or via podcast if you are going to miss some Sundays this Sunday, as many will. The book of Colossians, like a number of other books in the New Testament, was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to one of the cities or churches or Christian communities around the Mediterranean. Many of the books in the New Testament were written by Paul as letters. He wrote to those churches, some he knew well, some he planted, not all of them, but he wrote with different purposes to encourage, to thank, as we saw last week, to uh, teach, to clarify, sometimes to rebuke, sometimes to train, sometimes to uh, push out ideas that were wrong about God or the gospel. Remember that the gospel, this whole idea of Jesus as Savior and Messiah, ideas of grace are all new in the world at that time, not known before, no one grew up going to church. And so Paul is continually molding and shaping from afar as the first century, first generation leader in the church, shaping, encouraging, helping along as pastor, dozens of churches 
around the Mediterranean in that part of the Roman world. So he wants to encourage, teach, clarify, sometimes rebuke, sometimes straighten out. And all of that is going on in the book of Colossians, as we'll see a little bit this morning. The city of Colossae was an agricultural center on the Lycus River in the territory of Phrygia, which is now modern-day Turkey. It is believed that Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians before the year 61 AD because in 61 AD there was a great earthquake in Colossae that destroyed the city, kind of like 1906 here, but Colossae never recovered, was never rebuilt. Uh, those are some of the background things, and we'll talk about others as we did last week and as we go along this morning and next week. It's important that we always understand context, not just location, but what's happening in the church, and uh, what God is wanting to communicate through his scriptures rightly understood. And that's part of the reason we're reading straight through Colossians uh, this summer, uh, so that we're not picking and choosing bits of scripture out of context. So we'll get to that in a moment. Let me pray real quick. God, we ask that you would govern our thoughts and that you would guide our minds as we read, as we listen, as we study, as we think, as we ruminate, as we seek together this morning through words Paul wrote inspired by you almost 2,000 years ago. Shape us, mold us, conform us into the image of your son and according to your grace. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. Plant within us seeds of your word that will grow and bear fruit and bring you glory and bring us joy. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way stray or deviate from your word, may they immediately be forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So last week we read and in some ways rushed through verses 1 through 14 of chapter 1 of Colossians, which is essentially Paul's introduction, his joyful, thankful, grateful introduction to uh, his letter to the Christians in Colossae. This morning we pick up where we left off and we get into what may be the richest part of this entire book early on uh, of Colossians and maybe one of the richest and most important sections of the entire New Testament, at least with reference to a description of who Jesus was, what Jesus was about, his nature and his being. So I'm going to uh, rewind two verses into last week's text, starting at verse 13, to give us a little bit more context. Listen closely, follow along as I read. This is the word of God. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. We have not rescued ourselves from the dominion of darkness. God has rescued us, already done, from the dominion of darkness. It is God who does this, who has done this, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And notice that Paul doesn't say in which we have redemption in reference to the kingdom, but rather in whom we have, ref- we have redemption because our redemption or our being bought back is through a person, through a person and because of a person, Jesus. Now verse 15, this really sort of critical section of all of the New Testament that's worthy of really all of us memorizing, and I would encourage you, if you memorize anything in Colossians in addition to our little memory verses each week, memorize these six verses. The Son, Jesus Christ, whom the Father loves and in whom we have redemption. The Son 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross." What might God be like? What might God look like and how can I know? Those are some of my questions as a child and certainly those questions and questions like them have been asked by many people. This passage is Christianity's answer to all of those questions. Jesus. If you wanna know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you wanna know what God looks like, Look at Jesus. No one, of course, has seen God over the course of history and through the scriptures. We see several times that God appears in what theologians call theophanies. But no one has seen God except, Jesus says, as one has seen the Son. No one has seen the Father except those who have seen the Son. Two weeks ago, I took my son to the doctor for his annual physical exam. We're in the sort of the exam room. The doctor walks in, and she just goes, wow, he looks just like you. And I don't know whether he looks just like me or not. I hope he doesn't. But the doctor's almost in shock and keeps repeating, he looks like you. And I'm thinking to myself, you're a doctor. You should know this. Offspring look like their parents or at least their biological parents. That's the way it is. You should not be surprised. And so we should not be surprised that the Son of God looks a whole lot like God the Father. The Son of God looks a whole lot like, and maybe exactly like God the Father. Jesus said to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. But how did Paul, who was not in the room when Jesus spoke those words, and who was not one of Jesus' 12 disciples, how did Paul come to that awareness or knowledge? He didn't follow Jesus around Galilee. He didn't sit at Jesus' feet. He was not a part of Jesus' school, and as much as Jesus was a rabbi, what was, what he was, what Paul was, was a fully devoted follower of Moses and of the law and of the tightly codified beliefs, traditions, customs, and practices of Judaism. That's who Paul was until one day on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus with warrants in hand from the high priest in Jerusalem to arrest and to bring back to Jerusalem as prisoners anyone he could find who claimed that Jesus was Lord and who invited or was inviting others into the way of Jesus to follow the way with them into that community. When on that day a blinding light from heaven flashed around Paul causing him to fall to the ground and a voice seemingly said from heaven, seemingly from heaven said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And Paul's response is, who are you, Lord? To which the voice replies, Jesus, whom you are persecuting, Jesus. 
And that began for Paul three days of blindness or being in a tomb during which he didn't eat or drink. Three days when he didn't see anything, which maybe corresponds to three days of Jesus in his tomb. And out of those three days, when Paul gets his sight back, he's a new person, a new life. He has been transformed given new life, alive again, but in a different and better way, maybe a little bit like Jesus was alive again in a different way. Paul had up to that point held to strictly monotheistic ideas about Jesus. His mantra and all of Judaism with him was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one whole unit. Paul was a good and faithful Jew who would have also torn his garments in 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 enraged objection if he had heard himself earlier, any of Jesus' not-so-subtle references to Jesus himself and God the Father being one. Up until his experience on the road to Damascus, Paul had no place in his understanding of God that God could become a man in any way, that God could indwell human flesh. That idea, that concept was anathema to Paul. And that's why all of the Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, the ruling councils, tore their robes in disgust and offense when Jesus even subtly hinted that he and the Father were one. But then here's the Apostle Paul, the most highly regarded theologian in the first century church, writing, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Against everything he'd grown up with and professed, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And in him, God was pleased to have all of God's fullness dwell. This idea, however, would have been rejected by a movement that was growing in many places, infiltrating the church, including in Colossae, a movement called Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know, influenced by Philo. In Greek philosophy, Gnostics thought of themselves as the intellectuals of the day. And one of their chief tenets was that things of the spirit were good, but things of matter, in other words, physical material things, were either A, evil, or B, didn't really exist at all. They seemed to only, they only seemed to exist. And Gnosticism, which was popular among many in the Greek-influenced Roman world and of the first and second centuries, and of which there are plenty of strands still today in the church and not in the church, affirmed that God is spirit and so God is good, but God could not also be physical or bodily because all things physical created not by God, but by some far-removed, distant, and lesser emanation from God were corrupt and evil. And so they treated our bodies, their bodies, and all things of the material world as inconsequential or evil or non-existing in some strange way. And certainly didn't leave any room for Jesus to declare, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, which certainly didn't leave any room for the divine to be at the same time human. This is the context. The Gnostics who had gotten their foot in the door of the church treated Jesus as if he was a created being, less than God. And as much as he existed in the flesh, eat, drink, walk, touch, sleep, as matter, 
and so therefore inherently evil if he really existed physically at all. Conversely, as far as some Gnostics were concerned and in their attempts to hold on to Gnostic views, held that Jesus must have only appeared to be human, but he was really spirit and only spirit. And so when Jesus walked, he left no footprints, some Gnostics would say. He couldn't have been both divine and human, both spirit and physical, because the spiritual world was good and the material world, if it existed at all, was bad, evil. As an aside, some of you know the most ecumenical or universal creed of the Christian church of Christianity of 2,000 years is not the Apostles' Creed, which we speak together monthly here together, but rather the Nicene Creed, which addressed some of these ways of speaking, declaring in one place, we believe in, in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, and then very careful, word, careful words, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father through whom all things were made. And here's the paradox or the mystery that the Nicene tree goes on to explain. Through Jesus for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary was and always had been, quote, God. And so the Apostle Paul declares among other things, over and against the Gnostics and Gnostic-leaning folks inside and outside the early church, that Jesus was and is the image of the invisible God. And the word translated in, in, into English as image is the Greek icon, which is the word that would have been familiar to the Colossians. And an icon could be two things that often would merge together into each other or flow from one to the other. An icon can be a representation but a representation, if it is perfect enough, becomes a manifestation. When Paul uses this word icon, he lays it down that Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God. To see what God is like, we must look at Jesus. Jesus perfectly represents God, perfectly manifests God to human beings in a form which human beings can see and know and understand. And there are and would have been layers and layers and layers of interest in this for Jews in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and in the, all the way back to the book of Genesis where God makes things in his own image, human beings. For our purposes, I will say now only that the diminutive form of the word icon in Greek was the word that was used for a portrait. It is the nearest equivalent in ancient Greek to our modern word photograph. Of course, they didn't have the word photograph, but that would have been the closest word to our word, photograph. Following this trail, the word icon had still another use. In the first century, there were no social security numbers or notary publics who would verify a person's identity with fingerprints, with thumbprints. There were no retinal scans. Voice recognition software had not yet been invented. So when a legal document, any legal document was drawn up, it always included a description of the chief characteristics, physical and otherwise, and distinguishing marks of each of the contracting parties so that there could be accountability and accurate records to thwart fraud, to discourage people from pretending to be someone they weren't. 
And the Greek word for such a thorough description comprehensively of a person was the word icon. And so Paul is declaring that Jesus was and is the portrait of the unseeable God. He was and is nothing less than the personal characteristics and all of the detectable distinguishing marks of the God of the universe, all contained in one physical human being. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. But just for good measure, on this one point, Paul goes a step further. The Gnostics asserted that Jesus might, might, might in some way reflect who God is, but that Jesus as a created being was so many emanations removed from God that, the, that only distantly he truly represented God, maybe, to which Paul responded in verse 19 with these words, no, God was pleased to have all of God's fullness dwell in Jesus. Say that with me. All of God's fullness dwell in Jesus. All of it. Jesus is not simply a sketch of God. He's not a summary of God. He is more than a lifeless portrait of God. In him there is nothing left out. He is the full and final revelation of God and nothing more is necessary. Someone may think that my son looks a lot like me, but Jesus, as the author of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews later begins his book, says, Jesus is, quote, the exact representation of God's being. The disciple John began his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, which was a, a way of speaking of Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So if you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know how God is, if you want to know what God is like, we must look at Jesus. I ran into a friend yesterday who belongs to a different faith and holds the different beliefs, and I appreciated her acceptance of all people and faiths, even though, quote, we believe uh, different things. But in the end, we do not believe the same things about God because we recognize different sources of revelation. In other words, revealed truth, information, data, about who God is, how God is. We have different sources. And Paul and the scriptures in Christianity have always declared he is the exact representation of God's being, the image of the invisible God, the icon. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. People in the world today, and I don't know if you've noticed this, probably you have, so often believe whatever they want to believe about God, whatever or whoever they want God to be, as if it is any of our prerogative to determine who God is. And as if even if that prerogative was ours, leaving such up to you or me or any of us would not be a good idea. Too often people have made God into their image and that has not turned out well, either for themselves or for the people around them. On the other hand, the message of the scriptures and the Christian faith has been and is that we can perfectly know who God is, perfectly, and what God is, how God is, in and through Jesus. He's not a mascot. He's not a sort of likeness. 
He is the fullness of God in human form. And so we look at Jesus and see one who called people not to say the same, but to turn around and go another way, to return, to be reunited to God, who brought clarity to complex situations, who spoke truth into a world full of spin doctors and outright deception. He doesn't so much turn the world upside down as he turns the world right side up, a world that has already been turned upside down by its inhabitants. And upside down has become normal. And so like a little child, we believe that there's something that's just not right about this place. And there must be someone who is just perfectly right, ready, willing, and eager to right the ship, to turn wrong things back to right. Healing the sick, restoring families, rightly ordering priorities, pointing out injustice, encouraging extravagance at times and generosity at others, giving value to people who have been discarded by the world. Think of Zacchaeus. Think all through the Gospels. Think who Jesus was in the life of a wee little man and what he did revolutionarily that afternoon toward and to someone who wasn't so much looking to be seen but needed to be seen and Jesus sees. Bringing together enemies, dealing mercifully with sinners, which is all of us. Again, go just to the Gospels and immerse yourself in the Gospels to see what God is like and who God is. The way Jesus treats a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. She wasn't merely accused. She wasn't innocent until proven guilty. It was a given. She was guilty. She was caught. She was dirty. She was scum of the earth. She had no upright standing. There's no way she lifted her head in the public square. She hung her head in shame, defeat, humiliation, and guilt. And Jesus says to everyone else there, whoever's Without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And slowly, beginning with the oldest, they walk away. Until in their walking away, she's able to lift her head to the Lord who is love. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Ushering in grace to a graceless world. Did you know God was like that in his very core and being? Comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. So often we know that Jesus is right and that he rightly reflects God because he is God and yet we do not want to do what he says. Not because he isn't right. We know he's right and good but because what he says is hard. And we'd rather live in denial or for ourselves and embrace what is good and right and true when and if it is hard. I would dare say that Jesus doesn't fit into any of our political categories. None of us, none of you, none of me. He, is Paul, as Paul wrote in verse 18 of Colossians, is supreme in every way. Supreme over everything, over every thought, every way, every political view, every party, every church, every household, every entity. Supreme. 
He refused to enter into people's petty arguments about who is right. Do you notice how Jesus sidestepped those things in favor of what was loving and good? Edward Schweitzer uh, wrote, God is not an object that we, could take, that we could take in our own hands in order to analyze it and describe it exactly. God is always God in action. If you think of God as someone who just sits on a throne and does nothing, you have missed out on the exact representation of his being. Jesus didn't come and sit on a throne, did he? But he came continually in action, acting, moving, active. And the life and death and resurrection of Jesus specifies this as action of love. Where's the amen? But we are in danger of making our faith and making God and making the practice of our faith, the living out of our faith, the thinking of our faith into someone else or something else. God has revealed himself in Jesus. We must not ignore God's self-revelation. These next words are going to be awfully thick as if what we've said this morning isn't thick enough, but you're going to have to pay attention. I read this this week and it's just too good not to share because it comes from the pen of N.T. Wright, who is arguably the most renowned and respected New Testament scholar in the world today, at least the English-speaking world. And he has written recently these words. In Ernst Keisemann's famous 1953 lecture, which effectively launched the so-called New Quest movement, he urged that without serious historical Jesus study, the church and the world could reinvent Jesus's to suit their every whim. That is the negative reason for engaging, as I believe, Every generation of the church must engage in the historical study of Jesus, the deep drilling into who Jesus was, what he was about. Just as the Nazi theologians, Kaiserman's obvious target, had reinvented a non-Jewish Jesus, was it not true? So today people are inventing Jesuses who support all kinds of ideologies. And if we in the church think we are immune from this, I would urge that we think again. Christians are, alas, capable of all kinds of fantasies and anachronisms in reading the Gospels, and so by extension, in our thinking about God. And to pull the blanket of the canon over our heads and pretend that we are safe in our private, fideistic world is sheer self-delusion. It is demonstrably the case that where the church has thought itself safe in its canonical delusion and distortion... Whether or not this reaches docetism proper without continuing attention to history, we can pull and push the word Jesus this way and that and make it serve our own ends. It will not do, again, to sneer that historians always see the reflection of their own faces at the bottom of the well. What does all that mean? N.T. Wright just warns that apart from a continual looking at Jesus, an honest and deep and profound looking at Jesus. We, even the church, even Orthodox churches, even good churches, even pretty churches, are always inclined to get off course and to steer our faith in a direction that works well for me in my thinking. But in doing so, missing out on the one true God who simply is apart from us and apart from our wants and needs. What might God be like? What might God look like? He looks like Jesus. He looks a lot like Jesus. He was and is Jesus. 
Let's pray and then we're going to stand and speak the words of the Nicene Creed together. Let's pray. God, you've given us everything, a full revelation of yourself. We should have no more questions. All of our questions are answered in your Son, in his radiance, in his beauty, in his love, in the ways that he fully represents your heart, your will, your mission, your going, your existence, your nature, your character. All of our questions find their answers in him. Forgive us from straying from that and from him. Help us not to stray from him, from you. For coming to be among us and with us and as us. We thank you, we worship you, we praise you. Help us to follow you. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's stand and speak together just the words from the Nicene Creed that I read earlier. They'll be up on the screen as our affirmation of faith this morning. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made. Amen.